Hey, everybody. I want to ask a favor. We want you to tell us a little bit about you. Please participate in a brief survey at cnn.com slash audie. That's cnn.com slash a-u-d-i-e. This is CNN Breaking News. We have breaking news just into CNN. Harvard President Claudine Gay is set to resign. The toppling of Claudine Gay from the presidency of Harvard University. Her resignation brings an end to the shortest presidency in the university's history. Well, the whole episode was about a lot of things. She flailed under the public scrutiny of the school's response to allegations of anti-Semitism. Her critics raked her past work and found instances of plagiarism. When she finally resigned, it became pretty clear the campaign was also very much about something else. Claudine Gay was the symbol of the DEI regime that has conquered American academic life. Uh, They prioritize race and sex or uh, ancestry and anatomy over scholarly merit, uh, over uh, fairness, over equality, over every other principle. This is conservative activist Christopher Rufo. And he talks online about how conservatives can be most effective countering the mainstreaming of progressive movements. He's now known as the architect of several media campaigns against trans rights, wokeism, and critical race theory. And that's why I fought so hard both exposing the plagiarism and also putting pressure on Harvard uh, to topple her because I knew that uh, we were going to expose their contradictions, we were going to make it very uncomfortable, and we ultimately forced them to make a choice. Was Harvard going to prioritize truth or racialist ideology? This seems like a good moment to mention that Claudine Gay is a social scientist whose research focuses on how a diverse voting population can reshape politics. Anyway, the movement against DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, includes presidential candidates and conservative intellectuals. For example, here's Ayan Hersi Ali, who's famous for anti-Islam commentary. I'm really one of those people today who is celebrating the uh, resignation of Claudine Gay. But I think I'm also realistic enough to say that is just at the surface. The problem is much deeper. It started at universities. It has spread to corporations. It has spread to uh, lower ed, you know, from K to 12. It's everywhere in America. After the death of George Floyd in 2020, there was mass protest. And corporations and institutions from schools to banks pledged to interrogate racism within their ranks. And now the people who were charged with doing the work of teaching the values of DEI are facing a backlash. You're going to meet one of them on this episode of The Assignment. I'm Audie Cornish. Celeste Headley is an award-winning journalist and radio host. Now, I've actually known her since we both participated in something called Next Gen Radio. It was a program for budding journalists. In 2020, she became part of a wave of people carving out a place for themselves by helping corporations build effective DEI programs. Working in public media for so long, there's the frustration that comes from seeing an industry put so much money and so many resources into diversity efforts and really see almost no movement. She started hosting discussion groups to serve as a safe space to brainstorm how they could create lasting change. The thirst for that kind of honest discussion was so powerful. And we just decided that, look, we know how to investigate. Like, we know how to do research. If the things that we've been doing in the past don't work, 
and in so many cases backfire, what does work? And so that's what we started working on was investigating real evidence. Where were there examples of substantive change happening and how could we replicate it? Celeste is president and CEO of Headway DEI, which she founded in 2021. It's a nonprofit that works to bring racial justice and equity to journalism and media. But as the atmosphere shifts, Headway is rethinking the way they serve some of their clients. We've heard from companies who are coming to us desperate because they there's new laws in some states saying they can't use any state funds for anything that has DEI anywhere in the description. And they don't know what to do. Um, one of the ways we're getting around that is by describing it in terms of burnout and toxic culture. Does that mean you're getting phone calls where someone says, look, I still believe in this, but in my state, like, you can't talk about the stuff you yes. typically talk about. Yep. They're saying, we need you to send something to us that doesn't have DEI in it. <laughs> Does it have <laughs> things related to race or identity in it? So, yes, because it's still the same thing. We're still oh, talking right. about belonging. But at the top, it doesn't say <laughs> right. DEI we, we do not include We do not include DEI, that phrase, or diversity anywhere in the messaging. Uh, we talk about difference and we talk about belonging because that's the same thing. What are other ways you felt backlash? So we're getting way fewer calls since the number of diversity initiatives have started to close down. We're also hearing from a lot of people who are no longer chiefs of diversity. Many of those people who were hired in a rush during 2020 are now losing their jobs or being moved to a completely different department. Ooh, what does that look like? Essentially, they're often just either closing the entire diversity department down within corporations, like you'd have a chief of diversity. And, you know, oftentimes you'd look at a company's executive leadership and they would all be white, mostly male, and there'd be one non-white face and that's the chief of diversity. That's true. Right? Or even HR, <laughs> just like the people person right. or Absolutely. whatever the titles they give them. Exactly. So now what is happening is those chiefs of diversity are being either moved. Sometimes they're moved over into the HR department. They're being repurposed. Some of them are actually just losing their jobs. Where this intersects in the news interestingly enough, has been the battle over Harvard University President Claudine Gay. Obviously, the dialogue with her started with her appearance at the um, anti-Semitism hearing in Capitol Hill. Um, it moved into instances of plagiarism in her work. And I want to step away from the plagiarism for a minute, because in a way, a lot of the people who are cheering her demise have been talking about DEI specifically. Yeah, first it makes me think that um, much like woke, DEI doesn't mean anything. It's been vacated of meaning at this point. Like the way that they're using DEI as an adjective <laughs> for progressive hiring and promotion, it, that's not ever what it is. Like... The idea that Claudine Gay herself somehow was the result of a DEI culture that would elevate her somehow unfairly due to her race and gender. That the university itself was captured by DEI values that somehow made them less inclined to, um, I, I don't know, but it kind of goes on yeah. and on like that. 
I mean, look, I yeah, I, I'm black and Jewish, so the 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 taking down a black woman because of anti-Semitism issue is particularly obnoxious, in my opinion. It's so common for any non-white male who succeeds to be called an affirmative action hire, promotion, et cetera, which of course is completely and totally. But does this feel different? I feel like that's been around as long as there's been affirmative action, there's been people second guessing it. But there's something about this moment on Twitter. I think it was uh, Ayan Hersey Ali who was talking about this as well, following in a discussion with Elon Musk online. And she was alleging that somehow DEI is, quote, what they do behind closed doors in classrooms, boardrooms, on campuses, in medical rooms to vulnerable students and professionals who speak up. They threaten to ruin people by amplifying their mistakes, pile up on them, and cancel them. That's changing now. This was like another kind of you know, crowing response to what happened to Claudine Gay. So here's the thing. Um, I'm sorry to say, people of color don't have the power to do that. We don't have the power to take over. And we have seen again and again that even people who are blatantly racist don't really take a hit. You know, they talk about canceling people because of racism. Show me an example people's very blatant and horrific racist opinions become public and it's a topic of scandal for a week or two and then they just go right on with their careers as though nothing happened. So I'm sorry, the people that I see most losing their jobs are women. You'll note that all of the three university presidents who had to testify for this committee were all women. And that's always been the case. It's always been that way. after the break, how the DEI movement is holding up against conservative pushback. I know you're busy. We all are. But if you have 15 minutes or so every week and want to better understand the news, I've got a podcast I think you should check out. I'm David Rind, and I'm the host of CNN One Thing. Every week, I call up a plugged-in CNN correspondent, and we talk about a story they're covering. We break it down carefully and with context, without the unnecessary noise, so you can get on with your week. That's CNN One Thing. Listen on your favorite podcast app. I want to go back to this idea where you said it's almost like people are using DEI in the way they started, not started, the way they did use the word woke, right? Taking a term from the left Um, beating it into submission (laughs) with a new definition and then kind of introducing it into the culture as a bad thing. The activist Bill Ackman came out saying that DEI is, quote, inherently a racist and illegal movement, that he was concerned about reverse racism, racism against white people. Elon Musk has said DEI is just another word for racism. Can you talk about what it means for the capture of this term? And for the movement that was behind it, right, um, that we were seeing post-2020. Yeah, I mean, this is just, we literally see every time there's a step forward, it makes um, a certain demographic, which is in our country's history, generally white males and sometimes white females as well, afraid that 
allowing another group to advance inevitably means they will lose something. And this, this capture of language is part of that same effort to, you know, thus far and no further. This fear that you can't get ahead without taking something from me. This is a zero-sum game, and we're going to fight like hell to make sure you don't get ahead. Celeste, can I play devil's advocate for a second? Yes. Kind of seems like it's working. Oh, it's totally like, working. Woke, DEI, just this kind of, let's call it a progressive value, and the way it was promoted, there is a backlash. And yeah. Are there ways that you look back now and you think that the that the way these programs were implemented or the way this was talked about in the culture also fueled the backlash? No, I don't think, I think no matter how it was spoken about, no matter how it was carried out, there was going to be a backlash. That, that, that was going to happen. The, the thing is, is that we just don't have enough leaders with enough of a spine to counteract it. But is there something about the work itself? Because one thing I'll say about diversity, equity, and inclusion programming is it often works through institutions, right? The, the way we implement yeah. it in our society. And the way um, I call it the awakening <laughs> worked is there was a heavy emphasis on personal and individual experience. Yes. Um, what have you done? What have you said? A microaggression by definition is something that happens on a very day-to-day -day level between people. And that's not the kind of big systemic, I have a dream conversation. It's part of it. But do you, I, sometimes I do think that that contributed to the sense of people feeling like, what is this? Why am I dealing with this? Why am I talking about this at work? Why is my kid talking about this? Why, like, so people feeling somehow individually under attack? So, yes, I agree with you. Yes, but. <laughs> so, it, I agree that any of the training that we do as organizations that's designed to make us respect one another and not harm one another has been badly organized and it hadn't been updated until very, very recently. So there's that problem. But on the other hand, we are always talking about race in our organizations. It's just we leave out white. <laughs> you know, we're talking about all kinds of things which are about white culture, traditionally white cultures and people who belong to the white race. But because we leave the white out because that's the standard and the normal. We think we're not talking about race. We are. We're just talking about white, the white race, which is okay. But you can't say it's okay to talk about this, per this race and this culture and then anything else that we talk about, that's racial. I mean, you and I both know race is not real. It's not biologically real. It has to be okay to talk about it. And it's, you know, it's not even just race, it's ability. But just, <laughs> I know you're saying we have to be okay to talk about it, but you were also saying earlier that like people are now calling you being like, hey, we need to figure out a way to talk about it without talking about it because our companies, our states, like, because the backlash is real. Totally agree. And so here's, for me, that's okay. You know what? If you don't want me to say DEI, it's totally fine. It doesn't change what I'm going to teach you. 
because what I'm going to teach you is designed to work with your brain, your neurology, (laughs) to not trigger a defensive response. And that's how we get progress. Did everyone approach it that way? No, no. I mean, you asked me what makes us different. We wanted to figure out what was the real problem? What was preventing progress for so long? And one of the things that prevents progress is exactly what we're talking about here that's fueling the backlash, which is fear and defensiveness. So how do you have this conversation without making people feel afraid and without triggering a defensive response? You have to think about the long game. You have to think about not only how do I have this conversation about right now, about why certain terms like peanut gallery, like grandfather clause, why we need to stop using them without making someone feel like they're the worst person imaginable, that you're calling them a monster because they said it. Right. Or just sheer embarrassment that, yeah. wait, I'm not a... Wait, I'm not allowed to say X, Y, and Z. And yeah, you do get annoyed. You do feel like my, this my is ridiculous. Said that. Yeah. And you know, you know, one of the things that I, I said in my book speaking of race was like there's there's two kinds of people in this world, those who have said the wrong thing about race and those who will. There, there's no way that anybody can know everything that there is to know about race and identity and gender. You're gonna make a mistake. So if we create this culture of correction in which mistakes are not tolerated or acceptable, but they also, it's not a zero sum, right? You're not a monster because you used grandfather clause. Um, then, and you can hopefully be thankful to someone who corrected you. Can you tell me what's wrong with grandfather clause? Oh, so grandfather clause... In a nutshell. (laughs) Yes. Actually began during the years of Jim Crow when a lot of the laws uh, were written specifically that said you're only allowed to vote if you or your family could vote prior to 1960. (laughs) 1860, excuse me. Which, of course, excluded every single formerly enslaved person. And those were called grandfather clauses. In other words, was your grandfather able to vote in 1860? And so that phrase is specifically uh, about excluding African-Americans um, from voting. That's why it's, it's not acceptable. But it's also like a super common term, right? What's your response to people who see that as just a kind of cultural policing? And, and that some people are self-appointed officers in that culture. Well, that's true. And there are, I get really sick and tired of people who do tone policing. And yeah, how do you respond to people who think, well, see, this is also part of the problem? Yeah. And I say, you know what? It is, it's really hard to get along with other humans. And yet it's, it's what we have to do. Or like, who it's hard appointed to get along. you, the, the culture correction people? Right. Well, but it's also like, look, if I step on your toe, I'm going to say sorry. Even if your toe was out in the middle of the pathway, if I step on your toe, if I hurt you, I will apologize. And I'm going to say, I'm, I won't, I'm not going to do it again. If I say something to somebody that hurts them, I don't question whether they should be hurt. I just say, oh, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. And it's this simple. It costs you nothing to address people the way they want to be addressed. It costs you nothing to to stop using a phrase that hurts other people's feelings. And if you approach it that way, for example, I used the phrase paddy wagon and I had no idea that that 
has a really long history and a right. racist history. Whereas I'm Irish from Boston and States. I heard Patty Wagon and I was like, ah, they don't like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was corrected um, by someone who was from Ireland. And I probably said it again after that, but each time I would correct myself. There's no skin off my nose to not to say it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it cost me nothing. How worried are you that a lot of this kind of programming is going to end. You've already talked about a decline. People in the business world losing their jobs, et cetera. Um, state laws. I'm not deeply worried. And I'll tell you why. You probably have seen the stories that have shown that 11 people are responsible for the vast majority of book banning protests and demands in the entire country. 11 people. Yeah, it comes from reporting that studied um, like complaint hotlines of people filing formal complaints to school systems and states about certain books. And you're right, the overwhelming number come from a small number of people. And I think that that's what's happening with DEI as well. I believe the, the majority of Americans want to see progress on race. I, I absolutely do. And I think that there is a loud and vocal minority who are making such a stink at this point, and it's so effective. It's like Karl Rove-level genius effectiveness that um, it is intimidating and actually changing the behavior of corporations, which, let's be honest, on an executive level, weren't always on board in investing in programs that actually made substantive change. They were already just oftentimes offering lip service to the concept. But I think um, Americans get it. And I think this pendulum will swing back and it'll swing back soon enough that we will see people pushing toward this again. We will see people demanding that their companies live up to their value statements. We also were recently talking with Gen Z workers, and we do know this generation in particular, they actually specifically care about the idea of a company and its values aligning with their personal values. That like, as a generation, that is a thing that is on the table for them to think about. Yeah, and especially as we see, you know, we're in the middle of the largest retirement in a U.S. history as baby boomers begin to leave the workforce, there will be a change in what they demand. We're seeing it already in terms of these demands for a healthy work-life balance, uh, complaints about toxic culture. With that culture and those values that are, again, like tied into this, our conversation, there becomes a friction. It changes hard. And you know what? Human beings don't love diversity. We love, our species loves to be around people who are like us, who look like us, who sound like us, who have the same sort of memories that we do. We want people who have our our memories, our knowledges, our loves, our hates. We like to be around similar people, but we're better when people are different. It makes us better by almost every measure. It just doesn't mean that we're going to love it. And if we can stop approaching diversity as though it's a, a kumbaya moment, and again, I use kumbaya probably inappropriately. Yeah, are you allowed People to say stop that? saying that. <laughs> <Okay>. No, <laughs> really should not. There you go. I'm correcting myself. <laughs> stop using kumbaya. Um, if, we, if we stop treating it as a value to live up to and treat it more as a behavior, 
Like, this is a behavior. This is a habit of mind. We know a lot about changing behavior. We have no idea how to change values. The current conversation around DEI has been heavily affected by the activism of Christopher Rufo, who was also behind the activist backlash movements around the term woke and also definitely around critical race theory. And he said to Politico in an interview, I've run the same playbook on critical race theory, on gender ideology, on DEI bureaucracy. Um, For the time being, given the structure of our institutions, this is a universal strategy that can be applied by the right to most issues. And we've demonstrated that it can be successful. And he's right. And it's not too far off with, you may remember, Lee Atwater's now infamous interview that he did in the 1980s on the Southern strategy, in which you start start out by using the N-word, 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 but you can't say that anymore. So now you say things like cutting taxes or uh, states' rights and forced busing, and and it still works as well. The reason it works is because it's playing on people's fears, and fear will always override every other thought in a person's brain. Once they become fearful, their higher values don't matter anymore. And this is what I mean when I say that one of the ways we approach this right now is by berating people and saying, you are awful. This is awful behavior. Stop doing this. That just adds to their fear. It it means you're saying, we want you to leave that cult of white supremacy. And it is a cult because it's brainwashing. But there's no place for you here because we think you're awful. (laughs) So you're asking them to jump off a cliff into nothing. Right. That you're irredeemable also. Absolutely. So the better strategy is to say you're biased. And it's not surprising because human beings are biased. It's a tendency. We can show you how to get over that. And you'll be welcome here. There, There is redemption. You can move away from this and here's how you do it. You don't have to jump off that cliff into nothing. Step down or step across and we will welcome you here. Are more DEI consultants, people, starting to talk about what you're talking about? Acknowledging, hey, maybe we need to change approach here. Some are. And I think that the way you see that is the increased use of the phrase belonging. Um, because that's what this is all about. That's what this is about. I hadn't heard that. Belong, belonging is the strongest need for homo sapiens after food, shelter, and water. It's belonging. Belonging to a community. And so therefore, a lot of people now cling to those racist notions because that's the identity to which they belong. And we can make belonging mean something else. We can say there is this community of people who've made mistakes and improved and gotten better. And there's a warm welcome for you here. That's what inclusivity is. Inclusivity doesn't just mean including people who have been underrepresented in the past, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, LGBTQ community. It's not just that. Inclusivity means everybody. will include everybody as flawed human beings who have made mistakes and will make mistakes, and we will be each other's safety net. I'm watching out for you, and I want you to watch out for me. Make me better. Make me a better person. 
Celeste Headley is the author of Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. She's also president and CEO of Headway DEI. The assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Soke Samuel. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Our engineer is Michael Hammond. And Dan DeZula is our technical director. The executive producer for CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andrus, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namarau. Special thanks, as always, to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish. We'll be back in your feeds on Monday. Give us a follow or review. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>